Karina is going to read for us from Galatians chapter 5. You do have a Bible in front of you. I don't have a page reference, which is a very poor form of my part. Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 to 26. Good morning, church. As Prash said, it's Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 to 26. So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, if you're joining us this morning uh, for the first time, perhaps, or you're visiting uh, for the baptism, uh, welcome. We, are, we spent a number of weeks, this is week seven, thinking about this, Old Test- this New Testament letter written by the Apostle Paul to um, a church in Galatia about 48 AD, and uh, we're going to continue to reflect on that. I'm going to pray that God would help us uh, to, to reflect rightly on his word this morning. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would apply it to our hearts and make us more like the Lord Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Well, Channel 9 uh, created a show recently called... Actually, I don't know what it's called. It was about parenting. Uh, and it was this, I mean, parenting being the great idol of Australian culture, they figured, how do we get three weeks of high ratings? We'll get an expert to talk about what's the best form of parenting, what's the best model. And at the end of it, um, this doesn't really shock me, but at the end of it, the model that was, uh, was apparently the best version of parenting was free-range parenting. This totally lines up with kind of our permissive culture, I think, but anyway... Uh, free-range parenting. The question that I had at the end of the series, though, was what exactly does free-range parenting mean? I mean, the show lasted for about, well, three weeks. They had a few experiments, but it wasn't completely clear how free this family was. Uh, And when put in particular circumstances, which they weren't in the show, would they maintain such freedom? What does it look like to be free? It's the buzzword of our culture. We all want to be free, free of 
regulations free of government overreach. We want to be we want to develop free children. What does freedom mean? Now the question is actually very relevant to us today because last week in the Bible reading uh, and in Matt's sermon reflecting on that passage, he talked a lot about the idea that the gospel brings what he described as gospel freedom. Well, he didn't describe it actually. Paul did in his passage. Freedom. Gospel freedom. In fact, we, we were reminded gloriously that we are now free of the requirements of cer- this Jewish, particularly the Jewish ceremonial law. Christian freedom. But what do we actually mean by Christian freedom? What is free-range Christianity, so to speak? And this question is actually the question that flows into this morning's passage, the passage just read by Karina. And what's, what's clear from the outset is that free-range Christianity, Christian freedom, the, the Christian faith shaped by the gospel, is not simply a license to do anything. Because so, that's the question, isn't it? Does freedom in the gospel mean I can do anything? And the answer that Paul gives immediately in this passage is clearly no. That is not the answer. And if you were to look at the passage, if it's in front of you now in the Bibles, or you go back and read it later, what you'll see is that essentially Paul maps out two pathways. There is the acts of the flesh, as he describes them, and the acts of the spirit. And he says, he's not talking about, when he talks about flesh, he doesn't mean body necessarily, but a particular mindset, right, ruled by this world, and the acts of the spirit, ruled by the spirit. And he says there is only actually one way, there's only one way which Christian freedom results in, and that is acts of the spirit, acts of the spirit. And so he uh, he, he says in verse 21, in fact, at the end of it, those who live by the flesh will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those who live by the flesh will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's a very clear statement, actually. There's two ways. You choose one, you are not going to benefit. Freedom, which results in going down the axe of the flesh, is not freedom at all, actually. You disqualify yourself from the kingdom of God. But he's actually more specific than that. It's not just there's these general two ways. What it actually looks like to live by the Spirit, he's very specific in. And so in verse 22, he lists this famous verse, actually, where he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, forbearance, like patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Very well-known verse to those who've read New Testament literature before, known as the fruit of the Spirit by shorthand, these characteristics, these virtues. Now, virtue lists weren't unknown in Paul's time, but he uses the virtue list here to say there's actually a specificity to it. To live like the Spirit looks like something in real life. It has very specific characteristics. There is a concrete expression of this. And actually, um, commentators helpfully break this up. They say, look, love, joy, peace, these are Godward. These are Godward-shaped virtues. Uh, whenever, often when love and joy and peace are spoken of in the New Testament, they're actually toward God, love of God, joy in the promises of God, peace with God. That's primarily what New Testament writers are talking about when they talk about peace. It's peace with God. These Godward-shaped characteristics uh, secondly, there's an outward shape to it, forbearance or patience. 
kindness, goodness. These are ways of treating people. There's a Godward shape, there's an outward shape, and there's actually an inward shape too, faithfulness or steadfastness, as other translations put this word. Gentleness, self-control, and inner coherence. It's an extraordinary picture, actually. God is saying the kind of life that comes out of living in the Spirit, of Christian freedom, is this extraordinary balance, spiritually, relationally, internally. Godward, outward, inward. All of these things are so profoundly marked by living in the Spirit, by being someone who has Christian freedom. Now, this is actually in stark contrast. I mean, this is such an extraordinary list, isn't it? This is such an optimistic, glorious vision of a person. If you meet someone who has the fruit of the Spirit, has this Godward, outward, inward balance, you're meeting a very extraordinary person, actually. It's a wonderful vision of the life of a, of a human. A human being living like this is an extraordinary thing, a high point, actually, of humankind right here. Now, you contrast that message of the Bible with the message that, I guess, we inhabit here. I think more and more, actually, interestingly, we have an apathy or even a negativity towards change. The Bible is saying God wants you to be like this, but the world says we are who we are. This is how I am. This is the kind of person that I am. I can't change. This is who I am. That's the constant message. In fact, we don't just, we don't just kind of say, oh, I, I'm sorry, I'm like this. I, I wish I could change, but I can't. We actually turn often our vices into virtues. Have you ever heard this? Someone will say, uh, someone who who's actually lacks self-control and uh, has fits of rage will say, oh, she's fiery. Or someone who is, uh, someone who's actually has filled with selfish ambition will say, oh, he's driven. Yeah. He's very motivated. We have ways of, of recasting those, the, the list of things in the acts of the flesh to turn them almost into an alternate virtue so that rather than conforming to this glorious vision that God wants for his people, we create an alternate vision which just reinforces the kind of people we are. But do you see, do you see the, the optimism with what, G, what Paul is saying? He says, so I say, walk by this, verse, first verse, so I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. No, he says, you might not. He says, you will not. You will not. He has, a, he has an inherent optimism about the transformation that's on offer in the gospel for those who have gospel freedom. They are people who will not walk and will not gratify the desires of the flesh. I wonder if you have that kind of optimism for your life. I wonder if you have that kind of optimism for your children or for your spouse. Do you have that sense that actually this person can change? I can change. I'm not, I'm not just a product of my biological family history. I'm not confined forever to be an envious person. I'm not confined forever to be a person who lacks self-control. Actually, I can change. God has a vision for my life that's better than what it is right now. Because the fruit of the Spirit, 
what Paul's calling people to, what he's saying is the byproduct of Christian freedom is exactly that. It's a higher vision for your life. If you're someone who has Christian freedom, the freedom that we talked about last week, then the product is someone who's changed. And I think what's interesting actually is um, th- this truth is even more true the older you get. Because the older you get, you start to just write off parts of your life. You just say, yeah, look, I've tried for 30 years and that's just not, not going to change. That's, that's who I am. But, the, but Paul's word here, the message of the Bible is you can change. God has a glorious vision for the character and virtue of your life. And it's that extraordinary list of fruit of the Spirit in verse 22. Extraordinary. Now, the question is, of course, which naturally flows from that, is if you can change, who's responsible for changing you? Who's responsible? And I think what's really interesting is that Paul walks a wonderfully delicate balance in this passage. On one hand, he says, actually, you... I are responsible for change. We are responsible. So have a look at what he says at the start and the end of the passage, verse 16 and verse 25. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you'll not gratify the desires of the flesh. And then verse 25, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. They're very active words, walking, living, keeping in step with. He's saying, You have to do something. In fact, in verse 24, Paul will say this. He says, those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh. Now, he could have said those who belong to Christ have had their flesh crucified. Well, that's true too. But he says, have crucified the flesh. They've done something. Those who belong to Christ have done something. And I think he uses this metaphor of crucifying the flesh very deliberately, partly maybe because Jesus actually used crucifixion as a metaphor for the Christian life, for discipleship himself. In the Gospels, he says, uh, those who want to follow me must take up their cross and follow me. But I think Paul also uses it because the, the metaphor of crucifixion is so vivid. Jesus is not just saying, come and, come and do what I have done. Paul is saying here, as he picks up this, he's saying something very helpful, I think. Think about crucifixion. First of all, crucifixion is an act that degrades the body. Now, Paul is not saying you degrade the body, but he's saying you treat the acts of the flesh with no respect whatsoever. So you look at that list in verses 18 and 19, the acts of the flesh. Some of them you're automatically repulsed by. But it's actually interesting, as you go further into the list, some of them you write off. You write off selfish ambition. You write off envy or jealousy. You minimise them. You say, oh, I'll get them rid of them a little bit, but you know, there's just going to be a latent amount of that in my life. But to crucify the flesh is to say, I don't regard anything of value in that. There is nothing good about selfish ambition. There is nothing good about jealousy or envy. I regard them with no respect whatsoever. But to crucify something is also a decisive act. Because, of course, when you crucified someone, it didn't end until they died. I mean, that's why famously the, the soldier comes and plunges the spear into the side of Jesus' body to check if he's dead. Because crucifixion is about killing something. It's decisive. It brings it to an end. And so you can't look at the acts of the flesh and say, I'm going to become a little less envious, a little less divisive, a little less prone to fits of rage and anger. No, 
Paul is calling us, he's saying transformation involves ending that. Ending it. Being decisive in your decision to draw a line through it. And most of all, I think crucifixion is such a valuable metaphor because it's painful. There's no way you go through crucifixion and think, oh, well, crucifixion is painful. And so actually to, to kill off the sin in your life, to, to change, to transform, involves pain. It involves pain. And Paul picks this up even in this passage because he actually, he actually says when there is a conflict in you, that is how change comes about. You have to actually invite the conflict between the way of the flesh and the way of the spirit. You, you come to church, you don't feel any conflict. That's not a transformation moment, is what Paul's saying. I mean, it's not necessarily bad, but you're not going to change by just apathy. You're not going to change through comfort. We had a group of people who met together to talk about the future of St. Stephen's a few weeks ago, and we all put our finger on this. We said, if we want to change as a church, it's going to be uncomfortable. But if you want to change as a person, it's going to be uncomfortable. But the the encouragement in this passage is actually when you feel the conflict between maybe what you're doing and what the scriptures are calling you to do, that is the opportunity for change. Because actually to change, to crucify the flesh is painful. Transformation doesn't happen easily. I think too often we just kind of hope it will. We hope it just will happen. And I think this... This word from Paul, this half of what he's saying is really helpful because there is a whole line of spirituality which just, it's almost mystical. It says, I'll just sit here and God will do his thing. I can be completely passive in this. We, we might even just say, you just meditate. Just meditate on what God's saying. But Paul is doing more than that, isn't he? Because, I mean, meditation sounds easy. It sounds passive. It doesn't cost you anything. But transformation costs you something. It's costly. When you go to the gym, I always laugh when I go to the gym and I see someone who's just kind of scrolling through their phone on a gentle walk. And I think, what? What are you achieving there? Of course you don't get fit going for a gentle walk. Some of you are thinking, oh, that was me yesterday. That's okay. Good on you. I hate to break. You probably, you probably didn't get any fitter through that experience. Physical fitness comes through the challenge, the exertion, of genuine exercise, doesn't it? Spiritual growth and transformation comes through the conflict, the willingness to enter into the conflict and choose the way of the spirit over the way of the flesh, which will be costly, which will be painful. The Christian faith, Jesus says, is not a wide and easy road, but a narrow and hard path because change in the life of a believer comes through conflict between the way you used to be and the way God wants and he's changing you to be. That's one balance. But it's not everything, and it's really important to see that. In fact, it's probably not where the weight of this passage is. Because look what he says. He says, so I say, walk by the Spirit. Every time he draws us into this action, he always qualifies it with this. By the Spirit. And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And then again, verse 25, since we live by the Spirit. Let us keep in step with the Spirit. In fact, I think it's in verse, I don't have the passage right in front of me, verse uh, 17 or 18, he talks about being led by the Spirit. The emphasis in this passage is on God's work 
It's an emphasis, actually, which says you are not enough to change. You're not enough. And actually, I think that's where the, the bigger challenge is for a lot of us who have grown up in a culture which says, pull up your socks, you know, be disciplined, do X, Y, and Z. You just need to do this. That's how you grow. But actually, the passage constantly is challenging us to say, you and I are not enough to change. You're not enough. Your, your particular practices, your particular influences are not enough. You need more than that. And actually, when you look through the lists, you can see this bearing out. I mean, take drunkenness, which is one of his... I mean, that's a, such a countercultural statement in our, in our world to say drunkenness is a way of the flesh. But the, the act of drunkenness, which is self, lack of self-control, someone who's an alcoholic understands this. They understand, I can't just stop being an alcoholic. When you go to AA, one of the first things you have to admit is there's a higher power and that you need a higher power's help. I mean, that's because actually AA emerged out of Christians who understood the transformation dynamic at the heart of real change. But it also is an acknowledgement you're not enough. But think about kindness. Kindness, you can't just put kindness on because as soon as someone knows that you're trying hard to be kind to them, it kind of loses its flavour, doesn't it? feels patronising. feels patronising. And, and, and also, the thing that's most striking to me about this list is that Paul says, but the fruits of the Spirit are... Actually, he doesn't say that, does he? He says, but the fruit of the Spirit is. I, this really struck me this week. I think I've always just read it as, but the fruits, as if they're all... You can take some and leave some behind. But he's saying it's all or nothing. I remember being in a little mission team meeting where I thought, I'm going to just get everyone motivated here for the Christian life. I said, pick one of them and focus on it this week as we go on mission. I mean, there's something that's the value of that. But it's generally, actually, it's just a misreading of what Paul's describing here. It's all or nothing. See, that full list... You might find some which you're really good at, but the likelihood is you're probably just really good at them because of the temperament that you have. You might say, oh, I'm, very, I'm a very joyful person, but maybe you're just an extrovert. Maybe you just love being around people. Maybe it just presses your buttons when there's lots of people in the building. Everyone looks at you and thinks, ah, the joy of the party. Or maybe, maybe you think kindness. I've got my finger on kindness, but maybe you're just a timid person. Maybe you don't speak your mind. Maybe you lack confidence. See, the list, the power of the list is the breadth of the list, actually. Godward, outward, inward. There's just something in one of those triplets that you will find hard. And and as soon as you probe into that, the moment you find one that's difficult, it reminds you of this truth, which is central to this whole passage, that you can't change by yourself. You can't change by yourself. You're not enough. You're not enough. Now, focusing on the fruit actually means that you miss something. That's the challenge also of this passage. Verse 22 is so well-known, verse, and you can use it as a checklist. And in a sense, it's, it's a helpful checklist for diagnosing your blind spots rather than justifying your activities. But the problem with the list is you actually miss what Paul is saying underneath it. Because look what he says in verse 24. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with 
its passions and desires. No. He says, they haven't just got rid of activities. I think this is, this is the constant problem we make. We just measure Christian maturity purely on the basis of activity in our own life or the life of someone else. But Paul says there's something deeper that needs to be crucified, and that's the passions and the desires that go with them. The passions and the desires. I mean, if you were to just grab a a lump of wood, put it in a pot, and staple some leaves to it, maybe, if you're very artistic, from a distance, it might even look like a bush or a tree. Of course, it will never be that, right? And to the extent that you think transformation is just a place where you just add more and more disciplines to your life, all you're doing is stapling leaves to a dead lump of wood. Because you will never be able to legislate a change in the passions and desires that you have, the deepest things that you love and cherish. In fact, changing things inside is very hard to do. It's very hard to change the things you love and desire. Very hard. And simply, simply saying, hey, this week, I'm going to get up at 6 o'clock. Every, I'm setting my alarm at 6. I'm setting a reminder at 6.10 and a reminder at 6.15, so I'll be up and read the Bible this morning. I mean, that's good. Do that. But it will not, it will not automatically change your love for God by doing that. You're not enough. And in fact, what it, what it misunderstands is the primary dynamic in the Christian faith is an inward change resulting in outward fruit rather than an outward change resulting in inward change. Inward to outward rather than outward to inward. That is the Christian life. That is the gospel, actually. Your heart must change first for it to be a real change. And so the question is, how do you change something that's so hard to do without just simply being under another law? See, when you take that list and you say, I'm going to become more of this and this and this, all you've done is replace whatever other law you had, whatever maybe ceremonial law you had, with these, these virtues as the new justifying criteria for it. And the mistake you've made is you've, you've made the mistake of Galatians itself. You've, missed the Galat- you've made the mistake that Paul warns in Galatians of taking up the law to try and justify yourself. What we need to see is what Paul is promising extraordinarily in the gospel is that God's people are led not by the law but by the Spirit. That the gospel offers you God's Holy Spirit to do the great transforming work in your life. Paul started this letter by saying, Cast away the law. Believe the gospel. And he says transformation comes when God comes into your life through his Holy Spirit because he changes your loves. Romans 5, Paul says, the Holy Spirit pours the love of God into your hearts. Not even, in fact, firstly, your love for God into your heart, but God's love for you into your heart. The Holy Spirit takes what is true objectively and makes it true subjectively. John Stott has this great quote, which I'm just going to quote in full here because he really, he really captures what the Spirit offers us, which we can never offer ourselves. So he says, it's, no, it's not good giving me a play like Hamlet or King Lear and telling me to write a play like that. Shakespeare could do it. I can't. 
And it's no good showing me a life like the life of Jesus and telling me to live a life like that. Because Jesus could do it, but I can't. You get what he's saying, right? You can't just, you can't just say, I'm going to be Shakespeare all of a sudden. I, I, it's not good enough to say, I've seen how Jesus lived, I'm going to be like Jesus now. But if the genius of Shakespeare could come and live in me, then I could write a play like his. Of course, that's impossible, isn't it? Otherwise, we'd all be Shakespeare's. And if the spirit of Jesus would come and live in me, then I could live a life like his. The gospel says that is not impossible. The gospel says that is not impossible. Because in the gospel, you are offered God's spirit, God's power, the power that raised Christ from the dead, not to sit outside you, but to come and dwell within you, to transform the very things that you love and desire. And Paul has said in Galatians 3 earlier already, leading into this section, I ask you, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law? Or by believing what you heard? The answer is implicit. It's by believing what you heard. How do you get the Holy Spirit? How do you receive the offer of God to come and work in you? By believing the gospel. By believing that Jesus said, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. By believing the gospel that Jesus said, I've come to offer my life for you. You never leave the gospel behind. You never leave the truth of Jesus behind. It's always the fruit. It's always the energy, sorry, behind the fruit in your life. And the more you believe the gospel, the more you come to appreciate the power that God has placed within you by his Holy Spirit to transform you into this extraordinary vision that he has for you. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, We thank you for your word and we pray that by your Holy Spirit you would work in us to make us more like the Lord Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen.